Hello, and welcome to the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. As the leaves are changing and the weather is cooling down, I'm surrounded by reminders of how the triathlon season is rapidly coming to a close here in the Northern Hemisphere. Here at the TriDoc Podcast, that means a few things. The return of the Reels for Wheels segment, a period of less training to recharge my mind and body for the 2020 season, an opening of the brief window during the year when I can dip back into the TriDoc wine cellar and enjoy some of my collection, and most importantly, an opportunity to dedicate some serious quality time and energy to my family and friends who have sacrificed and supported me all year long. Training and racing in this sport, especially at the longer distances, can be all-consuming, and if you don't have buy-in from a team that includes your family, then I just don't see it as a viable sport to be participating in seriously. I am exceptionally fortunate that my family knows how important triathlon is to me and is willing to put up with my often unreasonable requests related to training. Of course, I strive to always ensure that work and family are unaffected by my training schedule, but let's face it, when you're in the midst of a big Ironman build block and trying to get 18 hours of swim, bike, and run into a week, something is going to give. So now that my season is just about at its end, this is when I take the time to show everyone in my household how much I appreciate them and their support. I make it a point to spend dedicated time with each of my kids, do more of the heavy lifting around the house, and lavish everyone with affection, and if I can, small tokens of my appreciation. For those of you out there listening who are in a similar situation as me, one triathlete in a house of many non-triathletes, I suggest you consider something similar whenever your season concludes, if you don't already. Showing your appreciation now and building up goodwill through the end of the year will certainly get you in the good books for when it's time to start up again for the next season, reinvigorated, newly motivated, and reconnected with the ones you count on most for, your, for their support. On the show today, I've talked a lot about the SBT gravel race that took place in Steamboat Springs this past August, and not without reason. It was an amazing event and incredibly well organized for a first-time affair of that size and scope. Well, today on the show, I'm pleased to have a conversation with Ken Benish, one of the team who came up with the idea for the race and was behind its organization. He and I talk about what it takes to put together a big event like that and what riders can look forward to in the years to come. The triathlete Routal goes to warmer climbs for one of the later races on the WTC calendar. Ironman Cozumel is famous for a fast, current-assisted swim, a flat and windy bike, and a hot and steamy run. My guest today gives us some more depth of insight into this popular late November race. First though, as always, I have a medical question to consider. With the return of fall and winter soon to come, respiratory tract infections are back as well. A dilemma for the endurance athlete is how to deal with those pesky viral illnesses. Should they train right through them, or is it better to take some time off to try and recover? I look at what the science says about colds and endurance exercising. That's coming right up. As I mentioned before, with the end of summer in the Northern Hemisphere and the associated changing of the leaves and cooling temperatures, we are rapidly moving into the off-season. While this will mean a decrease in training for many triathletes, at least for a little while, it rarely means a complete cessation of efforts. What it also means is the beginning of the colds and flu season, and this inevitably raises a question that I frequently hear from athletes. That is, is it okay to train while you are sick? This question isn't that difficult to answer, and yet it's hard to do so succinctly because in effect the answer can hinge on varying interpretations of the question. For example, I could choose to interpret this question in one of four ways and answer it accordingly. Will my illness be worsened if I exercise when ill? 
Will my illness be prolonged if I exercise when ill? Will I benefit from exercising when I'm sick? And am I a risk to others if I exercise when I'm sick? Before going into the details on each of these, let me first remind you of my answer to a related question back in episode 7, where I was asked if training at high intensity can actually make you sick by suppressing your immune system. Hopefully, you will recall from that discussion that high-intensity events like an Ironman do in fact predispose you to infectious illnesses, although over a fairly short window of time immediately afterwards. But, on the flip side, regular exercise actually boosts immunity over that of sedentary individuals. Well, what then is the effect of training when you're already sick, with some nasty, phlegm-inducing nastiness? Believe it or not, there has been a study on this, and it was a pretty good one, too. Researchers at Ball State University took a group of volunteers and evaluated their baseline characteristics while performing exercise. They then inoculated them with rhinovirus, the most typical virus responsible for the common cold, and evaluated the severity of symptoms among those who performed exercise versus a control group who was similarly inoculated with rhinovirus but did not. Symptom severity, incidentally, was assessed by collecting and weighing used facial tissues. Now, to me, this does not sound like an awesome study to have been involved in, either as a participant who got inoculated with the cold, or as an investigator who had to collect and weigh the Kleenexes. Still, I'm glad they did it, so that we at least know the results. Those results essentially showed that moderate intensity exercise had no bearing on either the severity nor the duration of a cold. And other researchers have verified these findings, though maybe not as eloquently, or with as much disgusting Kleenexes. Still, the basic recommendations for exercise during illness can be summarized as follows. For any illness above the neck, exercise is generally considered safe, though it should be approached with some degree of caution. That is to say, athletes should expect a reduced capacity to perform and should not try to exert at higher levels of intensity. For illnesses below the neck, pneumonias, gastrointestinal infections, anything that produces a fever, and specifically infectious mononucleosis in adolescents and young adults, exercise is not considered safe nor advisable. For mono especially, there are concerns about the risks of the spleen becoming enlarged and rupturing with or without trauma, so careful monitoring is required in those circumstances specifically. This so-called neck check, or being sure that the illness is above the neck is a pretty reliable way to assess if you should go ahead with that scheduled workout or not. But if you do decide to proceed, you need to consider the latter two elements of the original question, those being, do I stand to benefit from this exercise, and will I be a risk to others? With respect to the first part of this question, it's a valid one to consider. When you're ill, and particularly if you're feeling really under the weather, your resting heart rate is often elevated, and you're likely in uh, some state of dehydration. You may have achy muscles and joints, and quite frankly, you, you just feel like crap. The question to ask yourself in this scenario is which is going to be better, the benefit you get from skipping the workout to rest and try and recover, or the likely minimal, if any, benefit you get from doing the workout at a probably lower than effective intensity and effort because you feel like poop. Now don't get me wrong, I know this decision process all too well, and have forced myself to endure many a subpar workout for fear of missing a day of training. In the end though, in retrospect, I think 9 times out of 10 when I look back that terrible workout would have been time better spent eating soup, drinking tea, and just laying in bed. As for being a risk to others, there is no question that when you're in the wet phase of a cold, 
that is to say your nose is running, you're coughing, in the first three to four days of illness, you're pretty contagious, and showing up to group activities is probably not the nicest way to show your affinity for a team. If you're going to exercise during this time, do everyone a favor and do so solo and at a lower intensity. They'll appreciate it, and you will also when they do the same courtesy when they inevitably contract their own bugs. Now, clearly, as we head into the respiratory illness season, the best we can hope for is to minimize our risk of getting sick, and hopefully to not get sick at all. Despite what many advertisers would like you to believe, there really is no way to prevent a cold with 100% certainty, but there are a few things that you can do to try and decrease your chances of getting sick. First off, wash your hands. A lot. Colds are spread by contact, much more than by airborne processes. So by washing your hands incessantly with soap and water or with one of those alcohol-based cleaning solutions, you can go a long way to preventing contracting something. In the same vein, be conscious of when you touch your face. If you're around someone sick, be prudent about shaking hands, rubbing your eyes, or touching your face right afterwards. This is pretty much a sure way to catch something that they've got. When you go to the store, if the cashier is ill, Pay with like your iPhone or some other means where you don't need to hand your credit card or receive change back from that person. Seriously, I know it sounds a bit crass, but I personally hate getting sick. And these are things that I look for. If I encounter someone with a cold, I try very hard not to handle anything they've touched. Similarly, when I'm sick, I'm courteous and don't shake hands with people or handle their things. I simply explain that I'm sick and that they don't want what I have. And you know what? They're always grateful that I do that. Finally, The single most important thing that you can try to do to inoculate yourself from getting sick this winter is to inoculate yourself from getting sick this winter. And that is to say, get your flu shot. Look, the flu shot is not 100% effective. It never is. But trust me, even when it is least effective, it is a far sight better than nothing. And I promise you, none of you want influenza. It is the badass of respiratory infections and will knock you off your feet for at least a week. And for those of you who protest about flu shots because of something you've read on the internet, please look into it for yourself on a reputable place. The shot is safe, does not make you sick in any way, and most importantly, you cannot, in any way, shape, or form, get the flu or any other respiratory illness from getting a flu shot. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the show? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at iglad.com. My guest today is Ken Benish. After college in Southern California, Ken was drawn to the mountains and spent five years in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, before ending up in Boulder, Colorado for another nine years. During that time, he began racing mountain bikes and cyclocross, working his way up to the elite level. Three and a half years ago, Ken and his family moved to Steamboat for the cycling, mostly gravel riding, and a little bit of skiing, rekindled by his six-year-old daughter's love of it and can't see them leaving there. After 20 years in the apparel side of the outdoor industry, he parted ways with Smart Wool in April of 2019 to focus on the SBT gravel and other entrepreneurial endeavors. Ken is still an avid gravel racer, placing 9th at Land Run, 11th at the Crusher and the Tusher, top 30 at Belgium Waffle Rides, and many others. But for now, I'm glad to say that he's agreed to slow down just long enough to give us some insight on what it took to bring the SBT gravel race to life. Welcome to the podcast, Ken. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Now, your involvement came a little later in the development of the SBT Gravel. What can you tell us about how this race came to be? Um, you know, it was, it was uh, a year ago in July where uh, Mark Sackowitz and Amy Charity and I sat down and 
Um, we thought, you know what, we love Steamboat and we want to share um, what Steamboat has to offer in the gravel um, riding and racing aspect. And so we decided, you know, we had a question of, do we want to throw a regional gravel race or do we want to throw a mainstream large scale um, gravel race? And we decided that we just wanted to do um, a big reach um, and <laughs> we really swung for the fences on the, on year one. Um, and I think that we did a pretty good job of hitting it out of the park. No kidding. That's pretty incredible. So all of this came together in just over a year. Yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. (laughs) So in, in that year, what were some of the bigger challenges you faced as organizers getting this going? Um, you know, kind of everything, to be honest with you, um, when you have a, um, race that starts and then grows organically, you get to kind of, um, you know, make little fixes every year and, and figure things out. Whereas we had to take a step back and really, um, try to look at what the needs are going to be to throw a large scale. You know, we had 1200 people show up on, um, on the starting line on race day. Um, and just, you know, it's kind of no, um, no leaf unturned, um, to, um, really figure out what the, um, where the cracks in our, in our armor could be, um, throughout the race, whether that's, you know, the expo, um, the race start and how to, um, start the waves and things like that. And, um, you know, I think it all went pretty well, but we definitely each came back with, you know, a list of things that we really want to do to make things better. Um, as well as everyone's commentary, um, from our surveys has been amazing to, uh, help out, um, make it better for the future. But when um, you're starting with a sure. blank slate, like you've got this, you know, granular idea of, uh, you know, this yep. race you want to put on, I mean, like, first of all, how do you even settle on 140 miles? And then how do you sort of plot that out as a route? And I'm just curious uh, about some of the things that go into the background of this. Totally. And we're, you know, we're blessed to live up here. And so we pieced together a route. We had, you know, 15 different route options for the hundred, you know, we knew we wanted to make something really tough, but also attainable. Um, you know, we could have added in a lot of like some really hard single track. You could have done an out and back on buff pass and got, you know, 12 or 14,000 feet of climbing. So we want it to be really challenging, but still um, doable for, you know, most um, cyclists. So the routes and things like that, we really like laid out the routes, you know, it's 140 miles, which is big, but for the most part, you're within 25 miles of like the heart of steamboat at pretty much all times. And we did that really for a safety, um, from a safety standpoint to be closer to medical, um, things like that. So, and also for, um, over the summer, we had tons of people up here pre-riding sections of the course. So from the heart of steamboat, you can easily access like the North section or the South section, you know, for all of these you know, four or five hour day rides and see the entire course without having to venture too far into the back country and things like that. So looking so, back I mean, now, looking back now, mm-hmm. I mean, even before you got the survey results uh, on race day, were there things that you knew right off the bat, you know, Hey, these things really worked well for us, or these are things we need to, you know, fix in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that the aid stations worked really well. Um, we, um, when we were planning things out, we originally had planned that like a hundred, um, the first hundred riders would get bottle hand ups. But as we looked at things and like our core values of equality for everyone, so they said, wait, why are we going to do bottle hand ups 
for the first hundred people and then everyone else has to stop. And so we decided, you know what, let's, we want the race experience to be the same for everyone, whether you're Ted King or Payson or Amity um, or, you know, a, a mid packer, everyone had to deal with the same thing of stopping um, and getting all your nutrition and things like that. And so that, um, that strategy, I think worked really well. There's some tweaks definitely I need to do with that. Um, and then, you know, we had some two-way traffic, um, through that aid station one, two, the, um, the front group was absolutely flying. And so they were a little faster than we thought. And then, um, so we've kind of engineered and, and doing a little bit of an add on to the course on that steamboat lake loop to really minimize the, um, the opportunity for that two-way traffic throughout the day. Give me a sense of, uh, you know, you mentioned the aid stations as being a success. Uh, clearly, that takes a lot of planning. Uh, what 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 sort of goes, like, what gets used at an aid station on a given day for a race like this? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's definitely a lot of assumptions made in planning. Um, uh, but we ended up seeing 7,200 racer visits through the six aid stations. Um, two of them are used twice. But uh, we went through 3,700 gallons of water. Um, 100 pounds of peanut butter, 100 pounds of jelly, a pallet of Cokes, 120 loaves of bread, um, and 1,000 pounds of bananas and oranges, and uh, had 100 water coolers out there. I'm sorry, that's so, per aid station? No, that's total. Oh, okay. Total, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. <laughs> that's still yeah, that's still a tremendous amount of uh I, I think the water trucks were really like quite impressive especially later in the race when it was getting hot and seeing those big water trucks and knowing they were getting rapidly depleted yeah and that was one of those things like how do you get that much water somewhere and i was like you know and especially from a sustainability standpoint to not have smaller um water jugs and things like that. So I was like, well, I put two water, you know, trucks out on the race and, you know, that worked out perfectly. <laughs> yeah, I had, uh, uh, I, I wrote, uh, or I mentioned, no, I wrote a piece recently where I was counseling somebody on nutrition during a race and uh, I was telling them that, you know, during an Ironman, peanut butter is not necessarily the best thing to take because, uh, you know, it's tough to it's tough to digest, it's tough to, to eat and all this stuff. But at, at your race, peanut butter was by far my favorite thing. Those peanut butter sandwiches, I, I, I can't even tell you how many I ate and they were I, they were spot on. They were perfect. Awesome. They work better on the bike than, than running. So that's like once you have to run with that kind of like real food, it's a lot harder. But on the bike, it's... It, it, uh, well, know, I think the issue was are... the issue was for me is that I stopped at the aid stations. Uh, I, I'm not like I'm just not a technically gifted rider yet. I don't yeah. have enough experience. And so for me to try and eat while I was riding, forget it. So I would stop. I would inhale a couple of those sandwiches and go. Whereas yep. in an Ironman, I, I don't stop. So for me to yep. try to eat food while I'm actually putting out, you know, a high effort is just very difficult. But because I could stop at SPT Gravel, I think that made a big difference. And that really contributed to my enjoyment of those sandwiches. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to have a few additions next year, like watermelon and uh, some other fun stuff as well. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. And I got to say, the popsicles at the top of the corkscrew, totally awesome. Wasn't that great? I, we called those like the rogue aid stations. And I think like, you know, there was really only maximum of like 10 to 15 miles you ever went in between an aid station and a rogue aid station put on by our sponsors. So whether that was like Orange Seal or um, Primal or Smart Wool. Um, with the popsicles. And I think just it helped everyone's um, 
mental state of yeah. not having to go long distances. But yeah, I've heard rave reviews. Yeah, I think we're. I have a, another um, fun secret I think to add next year of a, of a good uh, rogue aid station. So toward, towards the end, when it's hot during the day. So yeah, awesome. And at what point did you realize that you had a huge disparity in the male female registration, and mm-hmm. that then decide that, you know what, we're going to do something about this by making available all those extra slots for women. You know, December 12th, I think when we looked at it, you know, we, we've been pushing really, you know, wanted to um, get more um, women participation. You know, our, you know, at SPT Gravel, we love cycling and we want to grow cycling, especially gravel cycling. And so, you know, to grow that, there's a, there's a minority in cycling, and that's honestly, we want more kids on bikes and we want more women on bikes. And so we looked at things, um, you know, we, we put together um, a big story of um, a lot of like our, the women and why, and why they ride. Um, and so that was a big um, um, process that we, that we went through for that campaign. Because, um, yeah, when we, when we looked at the numbers, yeah, it just wasn't, it, it just wasn't enough. You know, as, as we were looking at things and, and, and for t- participation and, you know, my um, it's myself, Mark and, and Amy Charity, and then my wife actually runs uh, Leanne Benish, runs all of our um, social media and sets up our website. And so um, we wanted to just take out the intimidation factor. And that's, I think, what a racing um, can do. And then also if you're you know, you come from a triathlon background and then also like the gravel, we wanted to um just make it inclusive and, and, and just let people know like, Hey, this, this is, this is nothing to be intimidated about. This is going to be as much of a party as it's going to be a race. Um, and so that's, that's where that piece came from. And, you know, there's some kind of small wins in there of, um, my mom did the, the blue course. She hasn't raced a bike in 25 years. And even she's just totally participation and she did it on her mountain bike and she, you know, it was one of the most fun days she's ever had on a bike. And so she was just like, man, it was just amazing. I just like, I just want to tell people like to not be afraid. That's great. And did you plan to have the ability to have all those extra riders? Like, were you like withholding a certain number of slots and then at the end you just decided, you know what, let's just make them all for women. Or did you just at the end decide, you know what, we're going to expand the race and just uh, add all those women slots? Yeah, we actually was the latter. We decided to expand the race uh, and add those slots. So luckily um, with our permitting process and things like that, we're, um, we're not really capped per se on the race from, you know, like a forest service permit or something like that, that a lot of other race organizers, um, go through. It's, um, what, you know, we feel is safe and, and we can accommodate. Um, so we, we carved out, um, you know, and, and made some more space afterwards, um, to accommodate more women in the race. Now, looking at some of the survey results that you said you had and looking at, uh, you know, thinking back to what worked and what didn't, uh, I know I received the email about some of the changes coming in 2020. What, what are some of the things that you would highlight as uh, changes for the better that you guys are planning for next year? Yeah, um, we, we went over um, that to making the um, course a little bit longer so we didn't have that two-way traffic. Um, one of the biggest things we got was, uh, you know, the jump in races distances from a 37 miles to hundred miles. So we're adding on a 65 mile race. Um, and that's, that's really good. Um, we heard that the finishing food 
um, wasn't as good as it, as it could be. And so we're actually going to Mountain Tap, who hosted the finisher party. They um, make really awesome wood-fired pizzas. Um, they were just worried about throughput this year, and we have a workaround um, for that and bringing in some more portable pizza ovens. So I think the finisher meal next year is going to be amazing. Um, it was also hot at the finish, um, so we're doing more um, tents and shade for that. Um, from an operational standpoint, um, just a lot more signs on the course. I, I loved your idea um, about um, putting, hey, you're entering the Cow Creek section or, or things like that that tied to the videos. I thought that was spot on. And that's one of those things where, you know, you know, I think we we thought of most things, but there's still a lot of things that um, that we didn't think of and that we're um, have it all. You know, we're, we're full board, um, full on for next year already. That's um, great. You know, we have our list of stuff and um, just, you know, just keep investing in the racer is, is how we look at things. Because, you know, from my stand, standpoint and from my partner's standpoint, I want SVT Gravel to be the best or one of the best days that anyone has ever had on the bike. And so from that optic, you know, it's just adding on to things and just making the racer feel valued and, and, you know, just taking out anything that could make it not fun. Cool. And I just want to, uh, for listeners, uh, Ken and I had corresponded after the race. I had provided some unsolicited feedback. Uh, one of the things I had said was I really enjoyed the YouTube videos that the SBT folks put out that uh, gave previews of the course. But then when I actually rode the course, couldn't really make the connection in my head of where I was. And I had suggested putting some signage up that would indicate that you were entering uh, a section that you had seen on a YouTube video. And that was what Ken was just referencing. Um, uh, you may have heard I uh, spoke to Catherine Eastley um, Krugoff recently, and we discussed the, the race as well. And she mentioned yep. something, uh, a, a change that you were considering. I don't know if this is actually out there, that um, you were considering altering the start next year so that people could self-seed because uh, that was something else that I found as a triathlete who's not hugely comfortable on a gravel bike uh, where the, <laughs> yep. the really fast people from the blue course came just rolling through us. Uh, she said yep. something about people seating themselves so that people like me who were really out there to ride would be a little further back at the start and the racers would be up front even from the blue course so that they wouldn't have that interaction. Is that something you guys are considering? Correct. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of, of almost like ways though, and, you know, in marathons and things like that, you have like your estimated finish time. So, um, things like that. So you can self seed and, and get a, get a gap. Cause yeah, you know, starting with, you know, even in a neutral rollout with 900 of your closest friends, um, you know, is not the most comfortable for most to be honest. Yeah. So, so yeah, if you can, you know, yeah, we can stage it and spread it out a little bit, yeah. um, to make it more comfortable. So, I mean, you started off with a bang. It was a hugely successful uh, initial event. Uh, how do you ensure that this becomes successful for the long term? Um, I mentioned briefly before, just keep, keep investing in the racer. Um, just, you know, we, like you said, we, we took all of those survey results and we've come through each of them um, and to, just to make it a better experience for everything. Um, the biggest thing I think is, is community, um, of, of, for, for growing it and ensuring that it's awesome is just embracing the, the, the gravel and the cycling community of whether or not they're doing SPT or other, um, events and races, 
you know, that's really, I think, what's made us successful is just our openness um, to, to everyone, um, just to grow the love of cycling. And I think that has shown. Uh, we, we did um, group rides, social, social Saturday group rides throughout the summer um, to show people different um, uh, sections of the course and videos. And it's, it's just, you know, I think that that is contagious of our, of our love for cycling. And I think that's what ensures um, the future of SBT Gravel. And have you guys considered uh, doing any other races, like a series or something earlier in the year to sort of whet people's appetites? Yeah, there's there's some things um, in the in the works. I don't think we're going to have any uh, other races this year. Um, we're looking at some some other things, but in future years, um, we have kind of some other options that we've been looking at. Um, that is um, that would be a little. Uh, definitely smaller scale um, for now and maybe a little more kind of like backcountry uh, oriented, getting a little further out and, and about versus that kind of 25 miles from Steamboat all the time. So, and, and I'd be remiss, you know, this being a triathlon podcast, if I didn't suggest, you know, you've got the lake there, you may want to consider at some point adding a run and uh, suddenly you've got yourself an SBT gravel triathlon. <laughs> That is very true. That is very true. My wife is a very uh, avid runner as well. I'm an ex. I'm an ex runner. I, I did some triathletes uh, back in college as well. So, so uh, uh, I'm, it's, I'm not totally foreign to it. Uh, but yeah, there's you know our, our terrain up here is pretty conducive to a lot of lot of fun things. But I know uh, you talked to Lance the the other week about his uh, gravel triathlon. So that's right. Uh, you know, and that's. You know, honestly, um, I'd like to call out um, a thanks to Lance. Lance has been um, kind of a mentor for me um, over the years, and the, um, I have worked um, for him at a bunch of triathlons. And I did—I've probably done 60 cross races that he's put on. And so he was a thought partner a lot for me um, for you know getting the bones of the race together to to ensure that the racers had a good you know all the aid stations and, and uh, experience like that. So. And thanks, that's thanks, Lance. Yeah, and that's been one of the insights for me. I mean, uh, having the opportunity to talk to Lance and now to you is uh, gaining insight into what goes on into getting these races. I mean, as a participant, I, I've always had a suspicion that there's a tremendous amount of behind-the-scenes efforts that go into this, but, but gaining yeah. some insight into it. And the thing that's really been interesting is hearing how the directors all lean on each other and learn from each other. And uh, it's clearly a, a pretty tight-knit community and uh, beneficial to everyone. And uh, uh, it certainly benefits us as participants because you can see how the shared experience turns into really, really terrific events across disciplines. Because uh, yeah. as as I have said repeatedly on this podcast, and as I will continue to tell anybody who will listen, SBT Gravel was by far one of the best events I've ever participated in. And uh, this was uh, coming from someone who signed up very hesitantly, uh, who was dragged kicking and screaming into it and uh, pretty much was not looking forward to it until maybe the week before. And uh, really, uh, I've I've now featured the event on the podcast on three separate episodes as a testament to how much I enjoyed it. So um, I unfortunately will not be able to come back next year because I'm doing Ironman Canada, which is uh, the same weekend, or I think the weekend after. Uh, But uh, I will be there in spirit for sure. That's right. Well, we'll 
we'll uh, all have a beer for you. Yeah, all right. <laughs> well, Ken Banesh uh, is one of the directors of the inaugural SBT Gravel. He is uh, hard at work getting ready for the uh, second event. Uh, registration for that is going to be opening up in December. So definitely keep an eye open for that because it will fill up very quickly. I'm excited to uh, reiterate what Ken said, that they will be adding a third distance, excuse me, a fourth distance. Uh, so that will be a 65-mile distance added to the short 37, the intermediate 100, and the long 140. Ken, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast today. Thank you so much, Jeff. Appreciate it. And now it's time for the Triathlete Routard, when I am joined by a guest to provide a review and insights on a popular race on the triathlon circuit. For this episode, we're heading to the Caribbean Sea and the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico for a discussion of Ironman Cozumel, a popular race that is held every year in November. Joining me for this conversation is a newly minted, certified registered nurse anesthetist, Jackie Angstrom. Jackie had done a sprint triathlon in high school and a marathon along the way when in 2011 she found herself in Lexington, Kentucky, fresh out of nursing school, starting a new job and not knowing anyone in the area. Naturally, this led to her googling, quote, what is the longest event to train for, end quote, and Ironman popped up. So she got a road bike for someone about her height and began training for a 70.3 and then the Ironman in Louisville. Jackie went on from those first couple of races to find a lot of success in the sport, with top five finishes in both 70.3 and Ironman races six different times, including third place at Ironman Cosmel in 2013. She took some time off from the sport to get her advanced degree as a nurse anesthetist and has now returned to Colorado where she's looking to get back into tries in 2020. For now, though, she's here to discuss this hot and windy race in Mexico. Welcome, Jackie. Hello. Good to be here. So, Jackie, when we think about Cozumel, uh, let's first discuss, uh, is this a race that people need to get on their calendars early? Is this one they need to sign up for as soon as it opens, or is this something that they can wait on because it doesn't tend to sell out? Generally, it's okay to wait. It sounds like this year it did sell out a little bit sooner or is filling up. It still is open. Registration right now, I saw, but um, it seems like you can wait, but flights are going to be expensive because it's typically right around um, Thanksgiving time is what I noticed. Yeah, and that race has uh, recently moved in the last couple of years. It moved a little bit later. It's now at the same time as uh, Ironman Arizona, which actually is a good thing because it tends to, Arizona, of course, fills up, and Cozumel is a nice alternative for people because it's the same weekend. But as you suggest, it uh, does uh, lead to some pricier flights if you wait too late. And I did receive an email, I want to say three, four weeks ago, suggesting that only 10% of spots were still available, but I have not heard and that it's sold out. And as you said, I think it is still open. But in general, Cozumel is not one you need to sell, uh, sign up for immediately. So that's good to know. Uh, how about travel? Uh, what uh, kinds of means are there to get there? And uh, how can people get their bikes there? Um, so Tri-Bike Transport does go to Cozumel, which is super nice. Um, as far as flying in, you can either fly directly to the island of Cozumel or you can fly into Cancun and there's very frequent and pretty inexpensive shuttles between Cancun. They'll take you to Playa, Playa del Carmen and then a little ferry takes you over to Cozumel and sometimes that's cheaper depending on where you're flying in from. Most of the flights uh, to Cozumel tend to be uh, they're, they're major airlines, but they tend to be, like you said, I think just from specific cities, right? Yeah. And otherwise you have to connect in Cancun. 
Yeah, can, Texas is a big one for sure that I see have seen a lot of connections through. But otherwise, it does seem like, especially from California or the West Coast, a lot of it's a lot cheaper to fly into Cancun. And then, like I said, there's a ton of shuttle services, and they're very easy and frequent to get over to Cozumel. Do you know how long it takes? Uh, like, if you land in Cancun, what is the timing for the shuttle and the ferry about? I would give yourself at least two hours, like an hour for the shuttle and then getting onto the ferry. And the ferry is like $11. It's very inexpensive and they make it pretty fun. So Okay. And uh, like you said, Tribike Transport goes there. So that's great. And they're uh, presumably right on site where the race is. So that's good. Uh, there is a race hotel, I believe. Uh, and, and the race is based in a town, isn't it? Yeah. And so there's a main strip of the town um, and there's a, just a ton of hotels right there. And they're listed on the site. There's quite a few listed because it's just a whole strip of hotels. Um, I think any of those are going to be walking distance. And so I would just compare pricing. Uh, Cozumel is a very safe town um, or island, I should say. And then um, obviously you're going to be biking around it. So you'll see the whole thing. Right. Um, do the course, but all, most everything is right in one, probably a one to two mile strip right along there. And anything there is going to be very easy to take a taxi or walk walkable. Okay. Um, when should people plan to get there? Uh, obviously it's a resort type of place. Uh, it's a nice place to be either before or after your race. But if people want to get in, you know, close to the race, uh, how many days do you suggest as a minimum to get there before the race? Um, I would get there two days before the race because it's, unless you're coming from somewhere where it is hot and humid, it's going to take your body a couple of days to get acclimated to that. Um, but I planned my trip and was really happy about this to have a couple of days on the back half. I had family come with me and it's just a great place to go and see this baby sea turtles are hatching that time of year, which is super fun. Um, so we planned our trip. We got there two days before the race and then we stayed two days after. So we kind of got to experience it pre and post race. Oh, that's great. And I've been to Cozumel, not for this race, but just uh, as a scuba diver and the diving there is spectacular. So if yeah. you're a diver and want to combine the race with a uh, diving vacation, this is a really good way to do it, a really good location to do it. Uh, okay, uh, let's turn our attention uh, to the race organization. Uh, obviously, Cozumel licenses the race from Ironman. They, uh, the race itself, I don't think, is uh, run or organized uh, with as much uh, Ironman staff as some of the other races around the circuit are. Uh, many of the races in Mexico are similar. Uh, what can you tell us about how well the race was organized and how easy it was to get things sorted if you don't speak Spanish, for example? Uh, very easy. I've done a few races, both 70.3 and full Ironman in Mexico, and this was by far the most organized, easy um, communication and just organization across the board was great there. Um, the whole island takes Ironman very seriously. So even if you're there in the off season, you'll see people like wearing Ironman stuff, volunteer stuff. So the whole it's a whole community event, um, and they do a great they put on a great race. Oh, that's good to know. That's great because yeah. I have heard not the best things about uh, races like Cabo. I know you've done Cabo. Uh, yeah. And we've talked uh, on another episode of the podcast about Monterey, which had some issues, uh, but it's not a race I would say not to do, but uh, definitely not as well organized as some of the races in North America. Uh, it's good to hear that Cozumel, and I, I had heard that as well from other participants, that it is actually pretty well organized and uh, they do a good job. Okay, let's turn our attention to the course, uh, the swim. Uh, this is a non-swimmer swim, isn't it? 
It is. It is. Um, it was the year I did it. The swim is shortened because the current was so strong. Uh, so I only got to do part of the course. Um, and it was a, it was a very big advantage to get a little further out in the swim. So spend the effort to get, you know, deeper into the sea. Um, and the current will take you a little bit faster. Um, but yeah, you are going to have a fast swim split. And like you were saying with the diving, uh, the, you're, it's completely clear visibility. So you're going to see tropical fish the whole way you're swimming along too. Uh, that's great. So, uh, similar to what you get in Kona with uh, really nice stuff on the bottom. And, uh, although in Kona, you don't have the current, of course. Um, <laughs> how fast are we talking? Uh, what, what are, I haven't had a chance to look at people's results, but I've heard that we're talking like 55, zero minute swims for the the full distance i would guess that mine like i said it was a shortened swim i want to say it was maybe only half the distance so i can't speak to like the normal sometimes but it was very fast and it you came out of the water not even fatigued because you're just kind of swimming along and the current's pulling you Um, it's not when i did it at least it was not a wetsuit swim though um so that's something to keep in mind um i I don't don't think it's ever wetsuit legal yeah yeah. yeah, so that is something to know. I mean, of course, it's salt water, so you have that buoyancy, but um, it was very warm water. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what's the entry and the exit like? Uh, do you, is it a fairly easy entry? I assume it's a deep water start. Yeah, so <laughs> that was the one bad thing I will say about this race. So I didn't even know the race had started. It was kind of like some people were in the water, some of us were on the shore, and then all of a sudden – some people were kind of shouting like, Oh, it started. <laughs> and so the race had started. A bunch of us were just like chatting on the beach. Um, but I think part of that had to do with, it wasn't their normal swim start. They actually started it from the hotel. I had just randomly been staying at. So I was just like at my hotel and then it got moved. That's where the start was. Um, so I, I can't speak to like the normal start, but that was the only thing that was a little disorganized was just, the beginning. And what about the exit? What's the, cause I know like, uh, there's not there's much not- in the way of sandy beaches in Cosmo. It's all a lot of, uh, what is it, what do they call the coral beach? It's like stone beaches or something. But anyway, so what, what was the exit like? It wasn't bad. It was, there was a little bit of sand like coming up out of the water and then it was like that rocky or like shell stuff, but not very long. And then you were like running through freshwater showers and then into transition. Okay. So you get your bike and you're out onto the bike course, uh, pancake flat, correct? Yes. And very it, fast, flat. Um, the only thing is, of course, everybody knows like no disc wheels, um, that back half of the island. I think you're going to do three loops on your bike. The back half is extremely windy. It's almost like it's loud in your ears. You can't hear um, like anything except for the wind. And it's probably, I would say, a good five to ten miles each of each loop that you're going to be in that. Okay. Uh, and, uh, what about like, is it bad enough that you have to be careful, careful with like even deep dish wheels? I don't know how bad they would be. Uh, I did see some people, I saw one person with disc and they told them they couldn't take them onto the course. Um, and then I did see like the normal zip wheels and things like that out there. I don't know if that gave people problems or not. I had normal, uh, wheel, like just like road tires on mine. Yeah. Okay. And, um, uh, are the roads closed or are they open to traffic? There's, uh, the lane that we were in was closed. So it's one lane and they have like taxis and stuff kind of running out spectators on the other side, but it was very, um, that we, I did not have any issues with traffic or like close to cars. Okay, great. And, uh, 
what's drafting like? I mean, was that an issue? It is. Uh, every race I've done in Mexico, I will say that that is a big thing. You're going to have the same. I don't I like I don't know if that's other people's experience, but a lot of like the big peloton tons of people. Um, and they're kind of aggressive. I will say like, you'll get trapped in them and they'll almost like swarm you into them and you try to get out. And, um, so that, that can be a little bit intimidating, I think. Um, and I did not see really anyone get cards for the drafting or the the big groups of people. Yeah. That was my experience in Monterey as well. And they, they were making such a big thing about, let's have a no draft race and trying to make this whole big advertising push about drafting is not okay. And it just seems like Central America, South America, it just seems like that's what they do. They just, they, I, I mean, I don't think they're doing it to cheat. I think they're doing it because that's just how they ride. That's how they race. They tend to race in groups. They tend to race like one on top of each other. And, and so that, you know, it's just sort of the norm down there. So yeah, I, that's been my experience as well. That's too bad. Uh, was the course well signed? Uh, very easy to understand. There was no issues about making a wrong turn anywhere. Yeah, very straightforward. Um, and every, like I said, there are spectators everywhere. It seems like the whole island gathers wherever you are. So there's people cheering you on. There were actually like a ton of people from the island yelling at the bikers who would like swarm around us. They'd be like yelling at them to leave us alone and things like that. So um, if you were lost, you wouldn't be for long because someone would be telling you exactly where to be. Okay. Um, the various, it's loops. So you, it's an easy course anyways. And then it's just... Easy turns. And you keep track of the loops yourself, I guess. There's no, uh, they don't give you a band or something as you come through. Yeah, you keep track. Okay. And any danger points? Not that I recall, no. It seemed, there were like a couple tight turns just getting out of town, but you hadn't built up enough speed to really have an issue at all. Okay. Um, T2 the same as T1? I actually don't recall. I think they were the same, but I actually don't really remember. Okay. Uh, so once you get back to T2, uh, you're out onto the run and that course again, pretty flat, not, not a whole lot of, uh, elevation to speak of, but very exposed, very exposed. You're going to be in the sun the entire time. Um, there's a good portion of it. That's going to run the main strip, um, which is very, very fun. Like I said, the whole Island of people, there are people for probably two miles straight surrounding you, just going bananas the whole time. So it's a high energy run. Um, when I ran it, it actually, there was a huge rainstorm and the streets kind of flooded. So you were running through like six inches of water and there were just kids out there going crazy, like just like having such a good time. So, um, a really fun high, probably the most high energy run I have ever had in a try. That's great. Well, you're, you're doing a great job of advertising for this race. It does yeah. sound, it sounds pretty awesome. Uh, and that's been the yeah. experience uh, I've heard from others who've done it. Uh, how about the aid stations on the run? Pretty well stocked, pretty frequent. Uh, they were well stocked and pretty frequent, except for during the the rain. Um, it seemed like people got maybe things got tipped over or something. And then again, it was almost like just the spectators were like running into convenience stores and bringing out water. And so it was like a little more chaotic. But that was just for a few miles during like this monsoon that like came in and then left. Wow. Okay. And uh, obviously, I mean, you've mentioned the crowd support several times. So clearly, that was a highlight. Uh, What was the finish line experience like? Um, Again, high energy. I know I had a couple uh, friends and family there and they had a a great they said it was very easy to spectate and they're able to get in and kind of watch. 
Um, and then you went through the finish line, um, and they did a, an, again, a nice job of like kind of moving people through instead of getting like people just stopping, they kind of moved people through. Um, yeah, again, high energy and fun. That's great. Uh, yeah. so clearly I'm going to guess from everything you've said, this is uh, a race you would uh, most definitely recommend. I would definitely recommend this race. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, of the races you've done, uh, is it, uh, and you've done Louisville, you've done, uh, Cabo, uh, you, uh, I think you did Boulder, I believe. Uh, it was, is this pretty much the, the highlight of all the ones you've done? Um, this one, I, we, I went and did one in Barcelona, which was really cool just because, I mean, that's just fun. Um, but this was probably overall my, probably was my favorite race just all around again, because it was, it's a really fun place to just be afterwards. I dive also. So being able to go diving the next day and it's nice when like friends and family can also enjoy the trip. So yeah. Yeah. So, so great destination race. It is. That's great. And, uh, they do a 70.3 there as well. Do you know much? I, I have to say, I didn't research the course for that one. Uh, is it uh, fairly similar, uh, to the course for the Ironman? You don't know. Eh? I actually don't know. Yeah. I, I should take a look at that and I'll, uh, I'll leave some, I'll leave a link to it in the show notes because uh, the 70.3 takes place a little bit earlier in the year and I know is also quite popular, but this also does not sell out. And, uh, that's another option for people to consider, uh, as a possibility. Uh, uh, well, Jackie Engstrom is a certified registered nurse anesthetist. She's also a uh, multiple Ironman finisher and has several podium spots to her name. And she completed the Ironman Cosmel back in 2013. And I thank her so much for joining me today on the TriDoc podcast to talk about this iconic race on the WTC circuit. Thanks for being here, Jackie. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. Don't forget to check out and subscribe to the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. There you can find videos from other episodes, Triathlete Routard, as well as other triathlon-related content. You can also now go to the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, where you can give it a like and a follow. If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Are you interested in coaching services or trying to take your triathlon training and racing to the next level? Well, please visit www.tridoccoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you will visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another listener question for me to answer an interview with two amazingly successful female triathletes who also happen to be amazingly successful medical students, and my colleague Janetta Iwanaki will rejoin me for the first Reels for Wheels segment, heralding a return to those long trainer rides that you can look forward to over the winter. Until then, train hard, train healthy. Train hard, train healthy.